So what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper and how should it be observed? Just a quick note on schedule. This is where we're going, working through this book called, that I wrote called Systematic Theology. We're today on the Lord's Supper, next week on the question of worship. How should we understand worship? What is worship involved? How can worship be more effective? And then um, January 18th, we start, uh, I'd probably be a three or four week, section on spiritual gifts, general introduction to spiritual gifts, and then a large argument over whether, in controversy, over whether some gifts have ceased in their early centuries or whether they all continue today, and then we'll talk about more specific spiritual gifts. So that's where we're going for the next one, two, three, four, five, six weeks or so, just so you have an idea of that. Now, background to the Lord's Supper. Let's first look at Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper just before he was going to be put on trial and then crucified. Um, we read this in Matthew 26, 26 to 29. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. Now, that is going to turn out to be one of the most controversial sentences in the Bible in terms of Catholic and Lutheran and other Protestant understandings of it. But at the beginning, it was just a very simple statement by Jesus. He broke bread and he said, take, eat, this this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So that's that's an account in Matthew and other Gospels have uh, similar accounts of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. And then Paul, uh, interestingly enough, has something that he had learned from the other apostles, apparently, that he passed down another sentence that uh, is not in the four Gospels, but it occurs in 1 Corinthians 11. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, telling them that they should and shouldn't do certain things in observing the Lord's Supper because there was some um, there was some abuse and some misuse of the Lord's Supper at that time. And so uh, those are just the, the bare details of the facts of what Jesus did when he began the institution of the Lord's Supper. Is there a background to this? Would those Jewish disciples, with their knowledge of the Old Testament, would they have had anything in mind when Jesus instituted this Lord's Supper the first time. Yes, they would have. There was an Old Testament background of a number of examples of eating and drinking in the presence of the Lord in the Old Covenant. First, a remarkable verse or passage in Exodus 24, 9 to 11. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, that's went up to Mount Sinai after the Ten Commandments had been given. Ten Commandments were reported to us in Exodus 20, were given to the people of Israel. It's just after that, these uh, elders of Israel, along with Moses and Aaron, the leaders, they go up to Mount Sinai because God had summoned them, and they saw the God of Israel, they beheld God, and they ate and drank. 
you know, that's one of those verses you you read it and you kind of blink and you say, did I really read that correctly? And then you read it again and that's what it says. They beheld God and they ate and drank. You would think if you go up to Mount Sinai and you're in the presence of God, the last thing you're going to think about is eating and drinking. But the only way that could happen is if if God told them to or maybe even made provision for them and provided food for them. What is that saying? It's saying that God counts it very important to share fellowship with us. And eating and drinking in his presence is an indication of his close fellowship with one another, uh, with, with us, with each other. Um, you know, you, you jump forward. Just I'm going to get off the outline just for a minute. But you think about Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Or the King James Version, I think, said, Sup with him, and he with me. And the idea of eating together is the idea of having personal fellowship with people. When people, uh, well, we have this manner for eight dinner where people can eat together and you get to know people better. Or if you have friends come to your house, or we had our children back at Christmas and and uh, and their, our sons and their wives and our granddaughter, and sitting around the table and eating together is, is it's kind of a highlight. It's something you, it's, you think back to, you, you remember together, because when people are eating together, they're kind of relaxed and they kind of talk together. Here, God is saying, you can eat in my presence. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. And not only the elders of Israel, but there were laws for tithing of the crops. And one of the things they did with some of the offerings, that they, some of them were burnt on the altars and, and, and burnt up as a sacrifice. But look at this. Deuteronomy 14, 23 to 26. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there. Now, later that was designated as Jerusalem, but earlier there were other places. You shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and of the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. So here is built into the yearly structure of Israel a command that during the year they would have a time when they would uh, go up to a certain place and gather for a celebration, a festival, and they'd eat in the presence of the Lord. You see the idea of joy? And there's reverence, and there's holiness, and maybe there's some fear at the presence of the Lord, but, but when all of a sudden he says, you can eat in my presence, is joy. Yeah, it's like being at home, isn't it? Yeah. And earlier than that, we can think back to the Garden of Eden where God said you can eat of all the fruit of the garden, except not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but all the rest of it. And of course, there wasn't any sin. And so they were in fellowship with God at that time in the garden. In a way, then, all of this eating and drinking in the presence of God looks all the way back to the Garden of Eden and is kind of remembering what we lost and giving a, giving a, a, a longing for a, a restored, complete fellowship when, when all of our meals are in the presence of the Lord. So that's a kind of a backward look. And, and I suppose, and I, it's kind of crossed my mind as I was taking communion just last hour in the church service, this is just a reminder of the Garden of Eden fellowship. Adam and Eve have had with God when they could eat of, of all the fruit of the garden in the presence of the Lord. That's, that's nice. 
It's good. It's encouraging. But the Lord's Supper also looks forward. It looks forward to a greater feast because Jesus said in Matthew 26, 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus is looking forward to a time when, I think after the time when he returns, when he will have fellowship with us. And once again, this uh, the cup of the Lord's Supper, the wine that they drank, he will drink anew or drink again with his disciples, and I suppose that means with us. And Revelation 19.19 speaks of this and says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so there's a forward-looking time when we're looking forward, not just to floating around with, with uh, floating around uh, like um, ghosts in heaven, but eating and drinking at the marriage supper of the Lamb with our resurrection bodies and enjoying... I suppose, food far better than anything we've ever tasted here on earth. In the presence of the Lord. Wow, what is that going to be like? What is that going to be like? Eating and drinking in the presence of God. So from Genesis to Revelation, God's aim has been to bring his people into fellowship with himself. And one of the great joys of experiencing that fellowship is the fact that we can eat and drink in the presence of the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? So that, so, that, so that the Lord's Supper ties us in to, to, to the whole flow of God's purpose from Genesis to Revelation. And every week or every month, or as often as we celebrate that, we're reminded of that. So now, let's, uh, with that kind of historical setting for this uh, ordinance, the Lord's Supper, now let's uh, think about more specifically what is symbolized or what is meant by it. First, and I suppose primarily, and this is, the, this is the, the primary meaning, it's a sign or a symbol of Christ's death. 1 Corinthians 11:26. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that's, and that, we know that, we understand that. The bread broken is a sign of his body broken for us. The cup is a sign of his blood poured out for us. So it's a sign of his death, and it reminds us that he paid the price for our sins. It's a reminder of the forgiveness of our sins. But if we start to reflect on this a little more, <clears throat> this, uh, this ordinance or sacrament or ceremony or symbolic act that we do of the Lord's Supper, it's designed by the Lord to have much more meaning even than that. It's a sign of our participation in the benefits of Christ's death. So when we obey his command, take, eat, this is my body, we're taking the benefits of his death into ourselves, aren't we? We're taking, we're, we're just, I mean, even a child can understand you're, you're taking the, the, the bread and the wine into, into your body, and therefore it's, in a way, it's taking Christ's body and blood crucified for you. It's a symbol of taking that into yourself, and therefore, participating in the benefits, gaining the benefits of it. And so, kind of related to that, it is a physical sign of spiritual nourishment. Just as when we eat uh, eat and drink these elements physically, there's a little bit of physical nourishment that goes on. But that's, I think, designed to picture the fact that there's spiritual nourishment that goes on, that the Lord kind of refreshes our spirit through this. And so it's a sign of that spiritual refreshment. John 6:53 to 57 
it's one of those verses that when people read it, they, they sometimes think, whoa, what does this mean? But let me read it. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, <clears throat> unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Ooh, it's one of those verses you read and you think, hmm. Uh, I think I'll go on to the next chapter. <laughs> I'm not going to do this too often, but I'm going to read the note from the ESV Study Bible on this <laughs> because I actually think it's a pretty good note. <clears throat> um, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood cannot be intended literally, for no one ever did that. As Jesus has done frequently in this gospel, he is speaking in terms of physical items in this world to teach about spiritual realities. Here, to eat Jesus' flesh has the spiritual meaning of trusting or believing in him. It's the meaning, trusting or believing in him, especially in his death for the sin of mankind. See also verse 35, where Jesus speaks of coming to him as satisfying hunger and believing in him as satisfying thirst. Similarly, to drink his blood means to trust in his atoning death which is represented by the shedding of his blood. Although Jesus is not speaking specifically about the Lord's Supper here, there's a parallel theme, because the receiving of eternal life through being united with the Son of Man is represented in the Lord's Supper. This is anticipated in Old Testament feasts and consummated in the marriage supper of the Lamb. So uh, once we understand that Jesus does this often in John's Gospel, you know, he meets the woman at the well. He says, well, if you drink the water I give you, you'll never thirst. Well, he's not thinking about, he's not meaning physical water. He's, he's meaning spiritual water. Or he says to John, uh, he says to Nicodemus, unless you uh, are born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus thinks, what? Born again? I can't enter into my mother's womb and be born again. But Jesus is not speaking physically. He's speaking spiritually. And so here, when he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. He doesn't mean literally do that. He's speaking in a spirit. He's speaking of physical things to teach a spiritual truth. And the spiritual truth is trusting in him and believing in him. Are you okay with that? And, then, and, and, and the people misunderstood it, of course. But I think this is, that the Lord's Supper is a sign of this then. It's a symbol of trusting in him. And it's a symbol of then being spiritually nourished as well. Then also... Um, the Lord's Supper is, in an interesting way, a sign of the unity of believers. Because, <clears throat> Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. And so, um, I know because of the size of the church, we have all the little pieces of bread broken up ahead of time. But you think, you think about that as it all came from one batch of dough. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, in a smaller group where it's just... Maybe a piece of bread where you tear off a, a, a bit of it and, and eat it, then it, it becomes a little more clear. It's one bread, but we're all partaking of it, and there's a symbol of being united in one body. And so there's a sign of the unity of believers. You okay with that? Okay, then there's a sign that Christ affirms his love for me. Because I'm sitting in the congregation, the Lord's Supper is served, 
And it's, it's like Jesus is inviting me personally to come. He's saying, here is, spiritually, my body and my blood, would you like to partake? I'm inviting you to partake. And when, when, I, when, I, uh, when I hear that invitation or see it actually being physically handed out, then it, it, uh, it's a sign of Christ's love being offered to me, isn't it? I think, I think you can see it that way. Um, and then it's a sign that Christ affirms that all the blessings of salvation are reserved for me. Um, we kind of hinted at that earlier. It's a forte. If, if the Lord gives us this food and drink, then it's, a, it's kind of a, a promise that he's going to give us much more. Not only the food and drink in heaven, but all the blessings of heaven and eternal life with him. It's, it's a sign that it's, it's a reminder that all the future blessings are laid up for me. So, and that was a little bit what I was thinking about last hour. I was thinking, whoa, this is an indication that many, many more blessings are going to come. Here's just a foretaste. Do you like that? And then, finally, it's a, it's a sign that I affirm my faith in Christ. I reach out, I partake. I take the bread, I take the cup, I take it into myself. It's saying, Lord, I need you. I need you for forgiveness of my sins. And, you know, it's also in a way, a sign that my sins were part of the reason that he had to die. Because I'm taking of his broken body and his shed blood. So there's a lot symbolized there. There's a richness symbolized there. Um, that's, that's the end of that whole section. Do you want to just interact on that for a minute or two before we go on? Uh, Carol, far more. I think of it, you, you don't mention the Holy Spirit much, but I I feel that I'm taking in the Holy Spirit. I think of God mm-hmm. being in heaven and Jesus mm-hmm. Christ at his right hand and the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit is within me. Mm-hmm. And it's a renewing and reminding and strengthening my faith in the Holy Spirit when I commune with him. Mm-hmm. Um, we even set an extra place at the table at Christmas mm-hmm. for Jesus' birth, you know, mm-hmm. and they always, someone always forgets, what, who's that? Who isn't here? Well, Jesus is here, and that's whose yeah. birthday we're celebrating. But, I mean, I think of it as his Holy Spirit mm-hmm. is here on earth. Okay. Carol, you know, that, that would be related to this point three, a physical sign of spiritual nourishment. That is, there is spiritual nourishment, and it is the Holy Spirit who ministers that to us. So, good. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. What else? I forgot your name here. Uh, I'm concerned about uh, how we can be reminded when we take communion that it's how, how do we get how do we protect ourselves from the ritual aspect of it? In other words, we set things for Christmas that we do, and we set things in church that we do, and we sing the doxology, and then we take communion, and mm-hmm. da 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 da, and all of a sudden it gets hung in the ritual. And, and that's the way it's observed in a, a lot of places, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's the hard question. I'm not sure I have one specific answer to it. I was, I, I kind of expected that somebody's going to ask me that when I was thinking about this lesson. And one thing that came to mind is um, there are other things in life that we do often, and we just have to remind ourselves of the blessing of them. And breakfast, lunch, and supper is one of them. Um, you know, you kind of get to the point, sometimes you take breakfast for granted, and I 
And it's good to remember, oh, I really am thankful for this cup of hot tea and this uh, toast with meat on it that Margaret has made for me this morning. And, and, and you know, to, so I think that it isn't that it's impossible to have thankfulness to God and a right heart with things that we do regularly, even eating breakfast every day or participating in the Lord's Supper frequently. It's just that we have to discipline our mind and kind of go through things that remind us and try to avoid having it fall into a routine and and forgetting the meaning. So, good, yeah. Okay. Um, Who's that back there? Mary. Mary. Oh, yeah. Back from Canada. Exactly. Hi. (laughs) One of the things that really helps me to keep communion fresh is that we do it apart from church often mm. if we're sitting around you know with company we have company who are we're talking mm. about the lord mm. there's bread on the table you know we will have communion together mm. and um or with our family um when we're together sometimes and it's got to be a nudge of the holy spirit you know mm. that it's not that it becomes rote then either um but that's something that really helps me to be keep it fresh uh, so it's not just the first Sunday of every month when we're in church. Interesting, Mary. Yeah. So And Wes leads us, and he does a great job. Yeah. And it's very meaningful for huh. for myself and with the guests or the family that we're with. Very interesting. Now, that puts me in a position of commenting on who can administer the Lord's Supper. And people have all sorts of different backgrounds on that. And I'm, I'm a little... I'm... I'm what shall I say? <laughs> I'm okay with what you're doing. Um, but I think that other people might not be. And there are some questions that need to be raised that I've got later in the outline. But I appreciate that you, that you shared that. We've never done that in our family. And hadn't, hadn't really thought of it because we thought it occurred more in a church setting. But, but without having thought about it too much ahead of time, I appreciate what you said. So thank you. Yeah, John? Two of the most meaningful Lord's Suppers I've had. One was with a pastor. We had a Bible study at our church back in Colorado. Yeah. And we had a dinner one night yeah. specifically to honor the Lord's Supper. Yeah. At the end of the dinner, we had actual bread and yeah. um, grape, grape juice and, yeah. and had a service. And it was just wow. very, very meaningful. And the second one, we, on our 40th anniversary, went on a cruise with Daryl. Oh. And on the back deck of the on the back deck of the ship. Really? The last night we had Lord's Supper and we couldn't find the bread, so we had bagels and Kool-Aid. <laughs> but it was just a wonderful, yeah. wonderful Yeah. I don't know what to say. Just yeah. meaningful, yeah. lovely celebration yeah. of Lord's Supper. Interesting. John and uh, in the front here and Mary both in the back, are in a way giving a, a, a different kind of answer to your question, Doug. They're, they're saying, um, here are some different ways to make it more meaningful by observing it in a different context. So, isn't that interesting? Oh, I got the mic, so yeah. what can I say? Oh, God, okay. Um, I just wanted to say that Mike and I have been the lucky recipients of, of West Bolt participating in communion as we are sitting around informally. And what I like about that, that's the first time I ever had that experience away from church. And it took away the ritual aspect. Isn't this interesting? And it reminded me 
that wherever two or more are gathered together, mm-hmm. number one and number two, that um, Jesus, it just reminds me that he's there with me in my everyday life <laughs> and to bring honor to him in our conversation. And it's not, the Lord's Supper is not just about honoring his presence on Sunday um, in a formal way, but uh-huh. it's something you can do outside the church Isn't setting. It, and it's, it became okay. more meaningful okay. to okay. me. Okay, all right. Keith? I just... Uh, perspective I have on this, Wayne, and I appreciate the richness that you've developed this, but I want to come back, like you said, to the first point about Christ's death, and it's really a great um, piece of wisdom of the Lord, you know, as he said, you know, as often as you do this, do this in memory of me, and uh, as in this morning, we sort of stop and pause and return and commemorate and think about his death and the cross, you know, it's certainly a very pedestrian example, but you stop and think about a holiday like Memorial Day and how many of us skip over it as an extra day off and don't really stop uh-huh. and think about the death of the people yep. to, to secure our country. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think God in his wisdom realized that if we could periodically pause and reflect on what the cost of the cross was, mm-hmm. it just enriches our spiritual walk. Okay, good. And uh, Keith, uh, now what I'm thinking as you're saying that is it keeps the central message of the Bible central too. Doesn't it? So we don't get off on. So here's the heart of it: Christ died for us, and so um, that's good. Okay, I haven't looked over this way. I don't see any hands. I'm going to go on. Okay, um, <laughs> we're going to. Uh, thanks for all those contributions. Um, now, here's the disputed area, and uh, in the history of the church, there have been some different viewpoints, and I thought I probably should say something to you about that. You know, I better say one other thing um, about uh, serving the Lord's Supper privately in your own homes. I don't know if there's any position that the elder board has on this or that the church has, but I think what, just just to be subject to the authority that I'm under as the elder board here, I don't want to be saying I endorse or disapprove of that. I don't think anything has been said by the elder board, and I, I think that that allows freedom on the part of individuals. Am I... All right on that. I'm just—it's one of those things that I hadn't thought about. But I'm—I'm—I am not going to raise any objection to it. I want to think about it before I do it in my own family. That's all I'm saying. But I, my initial reaction is a positive one because of the benefits to it, and I don't see a problem with it. Wes, do you want? Because it's mentioned you. Do you want to say something about how you've thought about that before I go on? Uh, there's a microphone coming. You mentioned that you're used to doing it with the church, but I think under the New Covenant, we are the church wherever we go. And as part of the New Covenant, we are all a a kingdom of priests. And we have that authority because, not on our own merit, but because of the merit of Jesus. And we are all priests. (laughs) And so because of that, I I feel uh, a responsibility to to uh, remember his death and resurrection yep. with my family and those who share my yep. home. You're not getting any objection from me. Uh, but I'm thinking of all my Presbyterian and Episcopalian Bible-believing friends who are going to hear this tape, and they're, oh, wait a minute. No, okay. Well, okay. We'll get to that later. Okay, how is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? Th- but thanks, Wes. Thanks very much. Um, the... the um, yeah, I, I just while we're on that, I'll just say one more thing. I know the objection that's going to come from people who are in churches where it's more formalized and they want an elder or a clergyman present. 
the objection is going to come, well, how do you guard against it being abused so that teenagers just careless, don't carelessly go out and just kind of fail to teach adequately about it or something like that? And just, do you see what I'm saying? It's a question of safeguarding it. But I think you're doing that. So that's all. Good. How is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? The Roman Catholic view historically has been called transubstantiation. And that is that the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper actually become the body and blood of Christ. It's a miraculous event uh, in Roman Catholic in a Roman Catholic view. This happens at the moment when the priest holds up the elements of the Lord's Supper and says, this is my body during the celebration of the Mass. Or this is the new covenant in my blood, or this is my blood which is poured out for you. Um, and what happens when you're sitting there present in the Mass in Roman Catholic teaching, what happens is that grace, in other words, a, a form of God's blessing, is imparted to you just by being there. And for that reason, it's very important for Catholics to be present in the Mass in order to get that additional infusion or dose of God's grace given to them. And if their faith is stronger, then they get more grace. But just being there is the main thing. So it's imparted in proportion to their subjective disposition or their faith. But just being there counts. And only the priest can administer the body and blood of Christ in the Mass. Um, and, of course, that, that, again, is Roman Catholic teaching. And every time the Mass is celebrated, interestingly enough, in Roman Catholic teaching, the sacrifice of Christ is repeated. So here, uh, Ludwig Ott, in his Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, says, in every Mass, Christ also performs an actual, immediate, sacrificial activity. As a propitiatory sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Mass effects the remission of sins and the punishment for sins. So, in other words, Christ's sacrifice is being, is happening in the Mass. It's ongoing. And um, um, the, that's from Ott, which is, a more, is an older, more traditional Catholic uh, book of Catholic dog, doctrine. And then the current, currently authoritative catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1364, says, as often as the sacrifice of, of the cross by which Christ our Pasch of our, our sacrifice has been sacrificed is celebrated on the altar the work of our redemption is carried out in other words in the mass Christ's work of redemption is being carried out and 1367 the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist or the, the Lord's Supper at the mass are one single sacrifice the victim is one and the same in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner, and that is in the sacrifice of the Mass. So this is the Roman Catholic view, and this has been the reason why uh, Protestants have taken uh, uh, a different position and have said with respect uh, to our Catholic friends, we differ with you on this, and we differ quite significantly because um, we don't see Christ's sacrifice as ongoing. I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute. Because of this teaching, and growing out of this teaching, because the elements of bread and wine literally became the body and blood of Christ, for many centuries, lay people were not allowed to drink from the cup of the Lord's Supper for fear that the blood of Christ would be spilled. So they would have a little piece of the bread of the Lord's Supper put on their tongue, put in their mouth. There wasn't any significant danger of losing any piece of that, but they couldn't take from the cup. So laypersons could only have the bread, not the, not the grape juice or the wine, 
of the Lord's Supper. Beginning in the 12th and 13th centuries, that spread throughout the Roman Catholic Church, and it's only been reversed, I would say, in the last 20 years or so in the Catholic Church. May Some of you may know a little more accurately, but I think uh, both the bread and the cup are offered to laypersons now in the Catholic Church. My response to the Roman Catholic view is to say, with respect, that I disagree with that view because it fails to recognize the symbolic character of Jesus' statement when he declared, this is my body. When Jesus takes a loaf of bread and holds it up and says, this is my body, they did not take that literally. The disciples sitting there, I mean, they saw his body. They could touch his body. It wasn't his body. He meant, this is a sign of my body. And, of course, that's an ordinary use of language to speak metaphorically like that. This is my body means this represents my body. And I think that's the way they would have understood it right then. There was no other way to understand it, I don't think, an ordinary way to understand it. It's a symbolic character of the language. B, it fails to recognize the clear New Testament teaching on the finality and completeness of Christ's sacrifice once for all time on, uh, for our sins. <clears throat> and here is a very significant difference consistent with a major, difference, a major difference in viewpoint among Roman Catholics and Protestants. We think that Christ's sacrifice for sins is completed when he said it is finished on the cross. There's no more penalty left to pay for sins. And that that relates very clearly to the Protestant view that justification means that our sins are forgiven once for all. But in a Roman Catholic view, if Christ's sacrifice is ongoing in the sacrifice of the Mass, it, it, it links to the idea that your sins are not completely uh, forgiven. Your sins are not fully paid for. But look, Hebrews 9:25 to 28. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest, this is the Old Testament, the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Uh, and so, uh, or in John, John 19.30, he said, it is finished. And so, we take the Lord's Supper as a reminder of the sacrifice that occurred once for all and will never occur again. Roman Catholics take the Lord's Supper or the Mass, the Eucharist in the Mass, as an indication that Christ's sacrifice is continually repeated then. But you see, doesn't that make you think that your sins aren't completely paid for? That the, that the sacrificial work of Christ is not finished? And that would cause great anxiety in a person's soul thinking, well, well, wait a minute, if Christ's work isn't done, yes, and then I'm not, I'm not completely justified, and then that ties into the idea that after you die, you're still not completely forgiven, and you have to go to purgatory and be, and be cleansed from your sins further before you can go to heaven, and then masses can be offered for people in purgatory so that there's more cleansing from sin. Well, anyway, we, with respect, would differ with our Roman Catholic friends on that. For Protestants, the idea that the Mass is a repetition of the death of Christ seems to mark a return to the repeated sacrifices of the Old Covenant and gives a reminder of sins and remaining guilt to be atoned for. <clears throat> oh, how is it? What, what do Roman Catholics do with leftover bread and wine in the service? I think it is kept in a special place and, and protected. And I think it is eaten or drunk by the priest. I don't know if it can be used again. It can be used again. Okay, great, thanks. Um, okay, 
new subject. Uh, who can celebrate this? The New Testament gives no instructions to place restrictions on who can preside at communion. So the idea that only a priest can officiate or preside, I don't think is justified by the New Testament. D, any restriction that will not allow laypersons to drink of the cup of the Lord's Supper would be arguing from caution and tradition to justify disobedience to Jesus' direct commands because he, he gave the, the cup to them and said, drink of it, all of you. They were all to participate in the cup of the Lord's Supper. Okay, now there's another view. <clears throat> I'll just touch briefly on it. And it's a Lutheran view. Our Lutheran friends who are Bible-believing Lutherans, and maybe some of you come from that background, agree with us here at Scottsdale Bible Church on almost every major point of doctrine, almost every doctrine, if they're, Bible, if they're more conservative, Bible-believing Lutherans. But on this one point, there's a little difference. Um, the Lutheran view is called in, with, and under. That is, the bread does not become the body of Christ, but the physical body of Christ is present. The physical body of Christ, not just spiritual presence, the physical body of Christ is present in a mysterious way, in, with, and under the bread of the Lord's Supper. And, <clears throat> and when people say to Martin Luther, well, wait a minute, Christ's body is in heaven. How, how, how can he be present in, in, with, and under the bread? The bread doesn't become his body, but it's, it's in, with, and under. Kind of like water is present in a sponge. The water is not the sponge, but it's, it's present wherever the sponge is. Okay. <sighs> Wait a minute, if Jesus' body is in heaven, how can that be, Martin Luther? And, and Luther said, well, Christ's human nature is ubiquitous. That is, he is everywhere present. And, and so Luther taught the ubiquity of Christ's human nature after his ascension. Um, I uh, don't find myself in agreement with that because I think the Lutheran view also fails to realize that Jesus is using a physical object to convey a spiritual reality. This is my body isn't meant literally. Any more than look at this verse, Luke 22:20. 20. This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Well, when he said this cup is the new covenant, they didn't think it was literally the new covenant. A cup isn't the new covenant. The a covenant is a, is, a, is a legal agreement by which God defines how he'll relate to his people. The cup was a sign of the new covenant. And so, this is my body means that this is a sign or a symbol of my body. And also, the Lutheran view, <clears throat> when you think about it, it really doesn't quite do just, justice to Jesus saying, this is my body, and, 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 uh, and, and like the Catholics do, make it say, this is literally my body. But the Lutheran view, in a way, is saying, uh, this, this accompanies my body. This bread is present with my body, or something like that. So it really doesn't satisfy the need for kind of a literal rendering of this is my body in any case. The rest of Protestantism, and that will include me, and I suppose most of us here at Scottsdale Bible Church, would not hold the Roman Catholic view or the Lutheran view, but would say that the Lord's Supper has a symbolic and spiritual presence of Christ. Not just symbolic, but symbolic and spiritual. So the bread and wine symbolize the body and blood of Christ, and they give a visible sign of the fact that Christ himself is spiritually present in a special way. And here is John Calvin writing um, in uh, his Institutes of the Christian Religion, first published in 1536 and then revised several times up to 1559, but that's the time frame. Calvin says, and the godly 
ought by all means to keep this rule. Whenever they see symbols appointed by the Lord, to think and be persuaded that the truth of the thing signified is surely present there. So if it's a symbol of Christ, then Christ is surely present. Well, that's a healthy way to look at it. Uh, doesn't he want us, when we have a symbol of his bread, of, of his body and blood, doesn't he want us to think that, in a spiritual sense anyway, that he is really present? And, and again, I go back to the, the simplicity of the, of the ceremony. Even a child can say, well, if this, if, this is a, if this represents Christ and I'm taking the bread and the cup in, or, the, or the wine or into my, into my or, or grape juice or whatever we use, um, when I'm taking it into my body, it's like taking Christ into me. Well, it spiritually is. And it should be seen as that, I think. There's a reality there. And uh, it, it's Calvin says, we must establish such a presence of Christ in the supper as may neither fasten him to the element of the bread, that would be um, the Catholic view, or nor enclose him in bread, the Lutheran view, nor circumscribe him in any way, all which things is clear detract from his heavenly glory, but he talks about still a presence of Christ in the supper of the Lord. And, of course, Jesus himself says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And if he's especially present when we gather to worship, we'd expect that he'll be present in a special way in the Lord's Supper. However, we shouldn't think of this as automatic or mechanical or magical. Christ only meets and blesses us there in accordance with our faith in him. And you know, I found that this morning. After I'd thought about these things and then taking the Lord's Supper, it was more meaningful because my heart was prepared and my mind was prepared. Um, and certainly there is a symbolic presence, but also, I think, a genuine spiritual presence of Christ. Who should participate in the Lord's Supper? Kind of getting to the end here. Well, only those who believe in Christ because it is a sign of being a Christian and continuing in the Christian life. Baptism, going down in, under the water and coming back up out of the water, a sign of being of dying and rising with Christ. Baptism is a sign of beginning the Christian life. But weekly, monthly, however often we observe the Lord's Supper, it's a sign of continuing in the Lord's Christ and uh, in, uh, continuing in the Christian life. And... Um, and taking the benefits of Christ to ourselves. So it should be only participated in by people who are believers, who, who, who by their action are representing the reality that they're taking the benefits of Christ's death by faith into themselves. So I don't think it should be just indiscriminately served to all people. And there's an appropriate warning that's said, uh, if you're not a believer, just let this pass by. And we do something to that effect here in this church. Number two, <clears throat> this is a little bit of a controversy. Many Protestants have said only those who have been baptized should participate. Why? Because you want to get your symbols right. Baptism is a sign of beginning the Christian life. The Lord's Supper is a sign of continuing in the Christian life. We should do the sign of beginning before you do the sign of continuing. Yes, I guess, if you want to get all your signs kind of in an order. But my response to that is... <clears throat> If a genuine believer who's not been baptized is forbidden to participate in the Lord's Supper, then you're giving another wrong sign. You're giving a sign that all these people are believers except this person who isn't allowed to participate. But that person is a believer. That's not a good sign. So you're not getting your sign right, your symbols right in any case. So I would say allow non-baptized people to participate if they have genuine if they you know, genuinely think of themselves as believers, but encourage them to be baptized as soon as possible. 
to make the symbolism correct. And third, only those who participate in self-examination. Paul says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul in that context is saying you're not caring for each other. Some are getting drunk. You're not waiting for each other. Some people don't have anything to eat and they're going hungry. I think not discerning the body means not knowing that you're part of the body of Christ. And how are you relating to people in the body of Christ? Are you caring for one another? Are you acting in love for another? If you are uh, angry with one another, having feuds and disputes with one another, being selfish and greedy in, in the presence of one another, not caring for each other, then, wait a minute, you're not showing what the body of Christ is like. And, and then there's going to be judgment on you, Paul says. And so let a man examine himself. That is, think of your relationships with others and, and are things right? Uh, between you and and other believers, and uh, and this is a time for self-reflection. Then, <laughs> oh boy. Okay, I'm going to do these last two questions because I'm running out of time. How who should administer? I don't think the Bible gives any explicit teaching. In order to guard against abuse, a responsible leader ought to be in charge of administering it, and it does not have to be an ordained clergy person or an officer of the church. Now that's my own judgment. I know people can differ on that. Um, but someone who is responsible, uh, a responsible person. I guess, Wes, you're the responsible person in that case. Uh, how often is the Lord's Supper to be celebrated? The Bible doesn't tell us. It should be done for edification. The most common practice in the history of the church is weekly, um, but churches have different decisions on that. Okay, now where am I time? Have you sensed that I've been rushing at the end? We have time for maybe one or two questions. JT, can you push the B on the... Thanks. Yep, Dudley. Add some uh, uh, contextual uh, flavor to validate your position yep. on the symbolism of, of communion. And Matthew 26 is the context of, of Passover. And in the Passover, uh, the uh, matzahs, there were three matzahs. Yep. Uh, the middle matzah uh, being broken, representative of Christ, the Father and the Son, uh, and the Holy Spirit, the three matzahs, and the middle one that was broken is the one that was partaken. Oh, okay. yeah. uh, additionally, the wine, there are four cups of wine in Passover. The okay. third cup of wine is the one that was drank as the communion cup. Yep. And then when Christ said, I will not drink any further, he was referring to the fourth cup of wine, which is the cup of celebration. Okay. And that's the cup that he will drink with us at okay, the marriage good. feast. Dudley, yeah, I think what I'm hearing is echoes of people who've taught how the Jewish Passover celebration had more symbolism involved with it that isn't immediate on the surface of the New Testament. But thanks for, thanks for bringing that up. Good. I think I'm out of time. <laughs>